0: EU
1: Confidential gets started right after this.
0: Today's episode is presented by Equinor. Europe aims to provide sustainable, affordable and secure energy for its citizens and industries. We in Equinor believe our energy sources and solutions will contribute to the carbon neutral Europe of the future.
2: All those
1: promises
3: will be nothing but blah, 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 to coin a phrase. And the anger and the impatience of the world will be uncontainable unless we make this COP26 in Glasgow, the moment when we get real about climate change.
1: Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And that, of course, was UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, channelling climate activist Greta Thunberg.
4: There is no planet B. There is no planet blah. Blah, 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 blah.
1: In his opening speech at the COP28 climate talks, we'll check in with our team in Glasgow to get on the ground insight into how the talks are taking shape. And we'll also debate the outcomes of the G20 Summit, which took place in Rome last weekend and touched on everything from vaccines to tariffs and global taxes, not to mention climate as well. We'll get to all of that in just a moment with our podcast panel. And later in this episode, you'll hear from one of Europe's most successful startup founders, Irish tech entrepreneur John Collison, on the state of Europe's tech scene and what he thinks policymakers can do to make it better. And finally, we have an update on the pressing question we debated earlier this year Is the EU funny? But first, let's get to that podcast panel. So it's a warm welcome to our podcast panel, Matt Karnichnik in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hi there. Carl Mattison, who has the great privilege of joining us from the city of Glasgow at COP26, our senior climate correspondent. Hi, Carl. Hi, Andrew. And uh, same applies to Esther Webber. Uh, welcome, Esther. I think it's your debut on the podcast. You're our senior UK correspondent and you're also in Glasgow. Hi, Esther. Hello. So great to have you all with us. And I thought we would pick up first uh, kind of where we left off last week. Uh, Carl, you set us up for the G20 and the COP26 climate talks. Um, So give us the story so far. There was obviously a question mark over how far the G20 leaders would get in terms of uh, climate commitments. And of course, now we're into the nitty gritty of the much bigger uh, forum, the COP26 in Glasgow. So give us the story so far.
5: Yeah, I mean, last time I spoke to you seems like a million years ago. (laughs) It's been a a real climate roadshow. We've been to Rome where G20 leaders kind of came up with simultaneously the best climate communique that they've ever come up with as a group and yet something that really doesn't sort of meet the demands of science or vulnerable countries in terms of lowering emissions down to meet 1.5 degrees um, warming, but I think the most divisive thing that happened was that the uh, in Rome was that the Italian presidency pushed very hard to get countries to agree to a coal phase out, and that was blocked uh, by China, India, Russia, and Australia. Um, I mean, the Australian Prime Minister said it wasn't going to happen. Like he got off the plane and told reporters he wasn't going to sign up to a ban. So. So it was a a difficult discussion. But I think my main takeaway from the G20 actually was that, you know, this was the beginning of something for that group and they will come back next year and they'll keep talking about it and keep talking about it. And I think it just sends a signal that this issue is at the top table of global politics now and it's not going to go away. So uh, there's a signal just in that for leaders as they then picked up and flew to Glasgow and then we saw two days. And the way it works with the leaders... um, this year, they come in at the beginning. They have a summit where they discuss all sorts of things, not just climate, and then they make these speeches. Welcome to COP, interminable, ongoing, climate. everlasting speeches. If Glasgow is to is deliver on the
4: promises of, the of Paris, the of Paris of it must the
5: that go for two days straight, and. Within them, they sort of outline what they're doing with climate change and what they're planning to do, and it's never enough. Um, So that's where we kind of got to. And simultaneously, they did try and announce a new set of groupings, things like an alliance on deforestation to halt and reverse deforestation by 2030, an alliance to tackle methane emissions um, and bring them down by 2030. So some good steps, but those alliances didn't include China. And obviously Xi Jinping didn't attend either the G20 or COP26. So there's a gap in the diplomacy that I think we could maybe unpack a little bit more as we talk.
1: Yeah, let's um, let's switch first to Esther, as we mentioned on the podcast last week. Of course, the conference is taking place in Scotland, but uh, officially it's the UK government that's the host. So ultimately, that's Boris Johnson, uh, who has... Um, you know, made climate kind of, or tried to make it, I think, one of the signature issues of, of his government. Uh, at the same time, he's also kind of um, fighting with the French on fishing rights. Esther, how is he trying to kind of position himself, present himself, uh, handle this big climate gathering, while at the same time also having this kind of, you know, Brexit-related row going on in the background?
6: Yeah, so as you say, Boris Johnson has really kind of embraced the cause of Net Zero since he became Prime Minister even a bit before that. He wants this to be seen as one of his kind of signature issues. Um, And this also ties in quite neatly with the fact that the UK is hosting COP26 this year as an opportunity for Britain to kind of re-announce itself on the global stage after Brexit. As with all things Boris, um, this hasn't exactly gone according to plan in two major ways. So first we had the G7 earlier this year when climate was on the agenda even though they didn't reach kind of substantive agreements. That was all being overshadowed at the time, if you remember by arguments about the Northern Ireland Protocol.
0: Tensions over Brexit threatened to overshadow the final day of the G seven summit. London accused France on Sunday of offensive remarks that Northern Ireland was not part of the United Kingdom.
6: The conflict related- uh, And this time, it's been fishing
0: predicted that these kind of uh, spats would happen in
6: the wake of Brexit, but they're in nobody's interest, so get them sorted out. And for goodness sake, don't let them overshadow the important work that's to be done here. So we have this article of Boris Johnson rocking up in Rome, um, trying to kind of bang heads together about climate, in theory, while all the sort of questions he was fielding and the briefings he was giving to the press were concentrated on this fishing row, so we have had things overshadowed to an extent. But I think the beginning, the first two days of COP, were about Boris Johnson and the UK delegation trying to kind of focus people on what's happening here.
1: Maybe that is an opportunity for you to jump back in, Carl, because you, you did want to unpack the diplomacy a bit more. So how is it going so far and, and how much of a role is the is the UK government playing there?
5: I mean, I, I think there's a, there's a struggle with the press in general around this that they it is framed through, particularly the British press are seeing this through the lens of Boris Johnson, you're right. But really, this is about... Getting big emitters to move on their emissions and rich countries to help poor countries to move on theirs by contributing climate finance. I think it's it's kind of ridiculous to think that the British anything the British could have done in the last two years that they've been building up to this conference would have changed Chinese
1: policy on climate change, and that not even Prince Charles addressing the G20. You don't think even that would have done none, it, Carl.
0: Uh, is more pressing than the future health of our planet. And Who knows? We'll never know, and Andrew. Um, so that is
5: <laughs> an okay. odd thing about this conference. People don't understand, I guess, that, or people may not understand, that the British are just the hosts. They're the COP presidency and they're actually supposed to play a neutral arbiter role so they can't really push too hard and they don't have that much power. I mean, they're not not—they're not the judges sitting up there. They're just convening a conference. So putting all that on to Boris Johnson is actually, well, it's both unfair and unrealistic. Um, Really, if this conference is not a success, it's because one week ago China brought out its 2030 climate goal and it didn't really shift the needle. If it is a success, then it's that India decided to set a net zero target for 2070 on Monday and Narendra Modi brought in their 2030 climate target. So these are decisions that get made in capitals, not in London.
1: Mm. OK, Matt, um wanted to catch up with you on uh, coalition talks which are going on in, in Germany. As we know, it's the Social Democrats, uh, the Greens, uh, importantly in this context, and the Free Democrats, uh, sometimes known as the Liberals, who are uh, putting together a government. How uh, green do we think that government is going to be compared to previous German administrations? And, you know, is it clear how whatever measures they may agree are going to be paid for?
2: Yeah, I, I just wanted to say we don't we don't hear uh, defense of Boris Johnson very often on this podcast. So uh, thank you for that, Carl. Uh, <laughs> I'm usually a lone voice in the wilderness. On that I point. haven't noticed you, uh,
1: you know, going to the ramparts for Boris, but I'm sure he'll be delighted to hear that. I'm not necessarily defending him; just
5: yep. maybe saying he's more irrelevant than the British press might want to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
2: setting the record yeah, straight. That's, talk about straight. talk about a backhanded compliment. <laughs> okay. On the coalition talks, I think that even in Germany, which likes to see itself as at the forefront of battling climate change with their energy transformation and other measures, there's a sense that they're not going to be able to achieve as much as the Greens certainly would hope for, uh, for the same reasons that we're just hearing from Carl in terms of the dynamic between those who are pushing for continued use of coal, uh, defenders of industry and so on who want a more gradual transition. And then you have the the Greens on the other side, obviously, pushing for much more rapid reforms. You know, Germany accounts for about 2% of CO2 emissions, which isn't huge. It's not insignificant. But I think there's a realization here that in order to make real progress on this front, you're going to need concessions from China, in particular, uh, from India, which I think their agreement to set targets here has been something that uh, the Germans have welcomed. But at the end of the day, you know, I think people are getting increasingly worried and depressed about where this is headed. Because even though these issues, as Carl said, are being discussed at the top table, they don't seem to really be going anywhere. And by the time people realize what's happening, uh, it's probably too late. At least that's sort of the, the German pessimistic view, let's say. Well, we you know, uh, Carl last
1: week called the COP26 a festival of doom so, uh, you know, you're on message Uh, Esther, let me go back to you uh, just because another thing that we touched on last week was an interesting kind of sidebar here, if you like is the relationship between the Scottish government and the UK government and, you know, there was a question over how both Boris Johnson and Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister of Scotland would handle that during this moment when they're both in the global spotlight, would they use it to try and get one up on each other how are they playing it so far uh, each side
6: i've no doubt at all and from everything i hear has been difficult behind the scenes i think that partnership has been tricky but i think on the surface they've had to kind of play happy families and nicola sturgeon has treated this as someone said to me yesterday as a selfie cop so she's just, like, going around, meeting those of fun people, having some cool meetings. But she's not kind of doing the, like, gravitas moment because that would cut kind across of the role of the Prime Minister. Um, and I think sort of what's been key to kind of holding that together, at least on the surface, is the fact that, you know, in theory this is about saving the planet. So no one really wants to kind of trust that. So that has kind of helped keep this weird coalition together. But I don't think it's comfortable. And I think there will be recriminations for some time to come, particularly over how it's affected the city of
1: Glasgow Mm. Uh, Well, as we said, one way to deal with that is obviously just to be in Edinburgh, which uh, we noticed a prominent American broadcaster uh, decided to do, uh, you know, just for the record, they are separate cities and uh, see themselves very much as as very different. Anything else anyone wants to raise?
5: Yeah, I I guess I just wanted to maybe add in something about what people may have witnessed over the last two days at COP or from COP because it can be really confusing and and a lot of the reporting that comes out of it is simultaneously triumphant and deeply depressing because there's this space that we're holding here which is that we're making progress but it's kind of never enough and all these leaders coming together is kind of an odd thing to watch because they really do come and just make two days worth of kind of worthy, quiet, boring speeches, but there's a, there's, a, there's almost an alchemy that is intended to happen in this space where you bring leaders together as often as you can in order to essentially give them the idea that there is an inevitable progress being made, that you're inevitably going to get there. And, and the theory behind the Paris Agreement, because it's not based on sanctions, you can't force countries to lower their emissions through the Paris Agreement. So the idea is that you have this routine, this ritual, and it is almost church-like. It's a kind of, um, it's a ceremony that you come and you do, and you say the things that you need to say, and eventually the idea is that you actually just start to believe it. And I think that this is the theory that's driving this process. I think it's hugely risky. It has a lot of potential to fail for people to come and make these speeches and then leave disillusioned and walk away from the process altogether there's nothing certain about what happens here but for me coming back to this space after a few years um, has been really fascinating to watch that alchemy rekindle a little bit because we've we've had a a hiatus
1: okay well we'll leave it there uh esther bat carl thanks very much thank you cheers thank you Coming up after this short message, you'll hear from Irish tech billionaire John Collison about Europe's startup scene. And we have an important update for you on EU Confidential's efforts to determine if the EU is funny. Stay with us.
0: A message from Ecuador As Europe greens its economy, we in Ecuador are ready to support ambitious targets. Partnering with European Industry for large-scale decarbonisation in hard-to-abate sectors by means of clean and low-carbon hydrogen is one of our answers to the European energy transition. Our H2H-SOLTEN project in the UK that is planned to produce hydrogen at scale can play a leading role in the UK's journey to net zero by 2050, renew the UK's largest industrial cluster, and unlock technology that will put the UK at the forefront of a global hydrogen economy. We in Equinor hope continental Europe will follow the UK with the same determination.
1: Much of the focus this week is on Glasgow and the climate talks there, but there's another big global gathering in Europe this week, the Web Summit in Portugal, which brings together key tech players from around the world to debate the latest issues, things like cryptocurrencies, AI and the like. Ahead of the summit, Politico's own Peter Heck spoke with one of Europe's most successful tech entrepreneurs, John Collison. The Irishman and his brother Patrick founded Stripe, An online payments platform a decade ago Now, nearly 1 million businesses use their systems in Europe alone And the company is valued at $95 billion John stopped by Politico HQ in Brussels to talk about Europe's startup ecosystem
3: Hi, I'm John. I'm the co-founder and president of Stripe. I uh, grew up in Ireland, and then I uh, moved to the United States for college. And I spent the first 10 years of Stripe's existence then in California. So we started Stripe in uh, 2011. So that was 10 years ago. And it's now grown to over about 6,000 people around the world and a very fast-growing presence in Europe. So Stripe builds infrastructure for internet businesses to accept payments, and to run their business online. So if you're a consumer, you may actually have bought from a business that's powered by Stripe Mm -hmm. already. And it's not necessarily the case that Stripe is a consumer-facing brand, but behind the scenes, Stripe is helping them manage all their revenues, collect payments from customers, manage their finances, things like this. So Stripe is really at the back end of the internet. For example, if I do an order on, let's say, Deliveroo or something like that, I maybe have done some business with Stripe. Correct. And Deliveroo is a perfect example where if you have used Deliveroo, then you have used Stripe. Payments is actually very complicated, especially in 2021. And I think part of the reason that Something like Stripe was needed was because traditionally you have maybe the banks that provide merchant acquiring services. That was the previous term of art. And it's just, you know, charge a credit card, that's it. But if you look at what someone like Deliveroo is looking to do, it's actually maybe a little bit complicated to implement because, you know, they want to charge you, you know, your money for your dinner. And then they need to split the payment to the restaurant that needs to be paid out. And maybe in Europe that's a separate transfer. Maybe in other countries it runs over a different banking rail. And then the courier needs to be paid, the writer. And then also they need to take their fee and things like this. And so it's actually quite a complex system to implement in one country, never mind all the countries around the world where they operate. And so Stripe provides this platform, this series of APIs, so that for Deliveroo, it's very simple to do that. And Stripe is handling all the complexity of different countries, different rules, different regulations on the back end. When you come to Brussels, do you have a really like, a goal in mind? And do you know who to speak to? We're here in Brussels actually mostly to share our ideas on the European technology ecosystem and how we can help uh, further enable that. One of the things that's interesting to me is I've been coming to Brussels for quite a long time. And I think traditionally, we used to have a chip on our shoulder, right? I would come to Brussels and people would be worried about strategic autonomy. And, you know, we're getting left behind in the race with America and China and places like this. And, you know, poor little Europe, woe is us. And Basically, the European tech scene has been doing amazingly well over the past, you know, 10 years, but especially over the last three or four years. And so if you just look at the hard data, uh, the first half of 2021, we raised more venture capital as an ecosystem than in any full year prior. So there's that. If you look at kind of the number of unicorns being minted, which is you know, a very coarse take, but you know maybe an easy thing to measure. Again, when I would come here previously, uh, you know I would meet with people and they say, why can't we have more European unicorns? So far in 2021, we have had 72 new European unicorns. And it's all across the, you know, you have ones in Amsterdam and Paris and Ireland and everywhere else. It's really exciting. And that number, that's 72, compares to 21 in China. And so, again, it's really flipped in terms of the progress that is being made. I think there's more things we can do to enable that. But anyway, that's a big part of what we're here to talk about. You know,
4: startups from, of course, because they're on your platform, Mm -hmm. but you have done the journey yourself, of course. You're Irish, but you studied in the US. You started a business over there as well. Mm -hmm. So maybe you're like the best positioned person to say, what's the difference between the EU and the US on support for starting a business? What's the main difference, according
3: to you? Yeah, I think what we do have a perspective that's useful uh, here because you know we're very deeply European. I grew up in Ireland, and not only did I grow up in Ireland, I grew up in Ireland during the nineteen nineties. Ireland entered the EU in nineteen seventy three, and the nineteen nineties was this incredibly fast-growing period when Ireland was getting a lot wealthier, and in big part due to its membership of the EU. Both of my parents worked at companies that were based in Ireland but were selling across the EU and so I think at, at a personal level we feel that quite deeply. And you're right that the entrepreneurial ecosystem is is quite different. I think the thing we have to avoid is honing in too much on factors that can be easily measured just because they're, you know, they're there. And so we tend to look at number of patents. I don't think that's a useful measure. You know, we look at number of venture capital dollars. That's maybe a somewhat useful measure. And again, uh, Europe is starting to do much better there. Uh, uh, you know, Back in 2004, we were 4% of global venture capital dollars. We're now 20% of global venture capital dollars. And so again, the metrics really have moved in a big way. I think there are impediments still, and some of them are maybe technical and some are cultural and some are a mix. And so to give you an example, there's a lot of work going on that we have been supporting on stock option treatment and the ability for startups to compensate their employees with stock options. And so this is something that some member states are improving their handling of. Uh, in other cases, you know, the member states still need to make more progress of. We've been working with a number of industry associations and in this not optional campaign that's been lobbying for this. Why is it important for companies to be able to give their employees stock options? One is it's just you know, a better outcome from an equity and fairness point of view in that companies that get big in the United States tend to have broad employee ownership of the company. They've been compensated along the way. And uh, sometimes you have more concentrated ownership in Europe. So that's reason one. The second reason is it practically helps companies get off the ground by deferring their cash flow. And so oftentimes companies will give employees quite low salaries but give them a share of the company you know, to, to compensate for that foregone salary. When the company works out, then they end up doing very well from it. But for a company that's for, in very early stages that is starved of cash flow, then they can defer those. Uh, you know, They can be more viable early on. But I think the biggest factor of why it's important to get this stock option stuff right is that you get downstream cultural effects of having an angel investment ecosystem. And so when a company really makes it big, when they become a Google or a Facebook or what have you, you have all these people who suddenly have money that they can go invest in the next generation of companies. And Stripe definitely had this. A number of our angel investors had previously been successful in you know, some other part of the, the technology ecosystem. And so I think that would be amazing for Europe if we had this ecosystem of angel investors, people who had previously been inside other technology firms. And so anyway, that's an example of something that we have direct experience of from Stripe's experience as a startup operating across you know Europe and the United States but also as we talk to all of the businesses building on the Stripe platform you know that's the perspective they mm-hmm. have and we try to help you know bring that perspective to to the folks here
4: This topic of stock options, it has been on the EU's agenda for a very long time. But we are making progress. We're not just tilting at windmills. You know, there there is progress being made. Yeah, because uh, taxation, of course, which touches upon this issue, is very much still of a competency for the member states. Mm -hmm. So actually, the question is, why are you in Brussels? Maybe you should be in the capitals from the different member states.
3: Uh, Well, part of it is leverage, obviously, where, uh, uh, you know, a lot happens in Brussels. But also, a lot of these things are influenced at the Brussels level. And so I think in the case, you know, what what has worked well on the stock options front is that there's a lot of alignment generated at the EU level that it is, you know, a strategic priority that we want to have a very robust and healthy technology sector. And then that gets percolated down to different member states but you know this is the magic of the EU right it's like a messy place and there's lots of member states with different cultures and things like that that's why we all love Europe so much it's that you have so much variety but that variety means that you can't just wave a magic wand and get to immediate consensus I think it takes a lot of consensus building that has been happening over the past few years. You talk a lot about like helping out small businesses with the difficult
4: regulatory rules that there are here in Brussels and around the world. But you really are very vocal on, for example, startup policy and harmonization around Europe. For example, your brother is tweeting a lot about that. Um, What's the reason for being so vocal about that?
3: Oh, I think the primary reason is we're European citizens and we just care. And I, again, I grew up in an Ireland that was growing very quickly economically. And I think it's... um, you know, we want to help continue that. And these days, I think Europe has phenomenal assets to bring to bear. And the question is then how you enable so many, you know, tech companies and scale-ups and things like that. What's the answer to that to that question? How do you enable them? Well, I think there's no one answer. I do think, if I was to try to come up with a summary, I think the European single digital market does not actually exist yet. You know, it is an ideal that we have, but it doesn't actually exist yet. And so we are trying to make that happen at Stripe. And in the products that we make, we're trying to make that happen where now, again, you can manage your VAT all across Europe, you can accept money from all across Europe, whether it's, you know, a Belgian using bank contact or, you know, someone in the Netherlands using Ideal or someone in the UK who wants to pay with a direct debit or whatever. You know, again, we are trying to make that happen from a Stripe product perspective. But there are certain things that just need to happen from a policy perspective as well when it comes to, uh, to standardization. And I think it'd be really nice to have everyone working together to try to make this, again, single digital market a reality because we have an economic block that's very large. And sometimes when it's hard for businesses, it's when they need to work at a member state By member state level, as opposed to having the freedoms that the EU is meant to bring.
4: Okay, great. Uh, Thanks for this uh, conversation. This is really fun. Thank you.
1: Thanks to Peter for bringing us that conversation. And finally, let's briefly return to a topic that we tried to tackle earlier this year: Is the EU funny? One of the things about this podcast is that sometimes necessity is the mother of invention. And when we are thinking of topics that we want to cover on the podcast, sometimes. Uh, there's nothing obvious in the news that leaps out at us. And we had the idea back in February of exploring the idea of whether the EU is funny or not. I think it, a lot of it boils down to the fact that the EU isn't funny, <laughs> <laughs> it is a deeply boring procedural set, um, setup. But therein lies the humour in a way. I mean, the. Yes. uh, Yes. And this came partly because one of the things that struck me when I first came to Brussels was that there is this kind of little uh, scene, mainly around social media, of of humour and satire around the EU, which is kind of largely unknown to people outside of it. And as part of that uh, discussion, uh, we brought together a few people, including our own Paul Dallison, who writes the weekly satirical declassified column. And I'm delighted to say that Paul joins us again now. Hi, Paul. Hi, Andrew. And maybe you'd like to pick up the story because as a result of that uh, discussion, one thing has led to another. And in a sense, we have a kind of a new EU institution has been born. Uh, Tell us what happened. Yeah. So also on that
7: podcast that day was Kelly Agathos, who used to work for the institutions and then left to become a full-time improviser and actor. She contacted me afterwards to say, hey, why don't we do something funny around the EU? She'd already had the idea with another journalist called Lisa Vitterman to do uh, – the original thinking was, can we do an EU version of the American late-night shows? Well, what's happened in the intervening time is we have come up with a show called The Schumann Show, and this week we did our second show. We did another one in September – and to a sold-out house at a theatre in Brussels, almost 250 people. And it's become, well, it's become quite a thing. Yeah, and you're going to do it every
1: month now, right, from now on?
7: That's the idea. The last Thursday of every month, we're going to take a break in December. But then next year, we'll do it again. Once a month, brand new show, performed live on stage with sketches, songs, monologues, improvisation, anything else we can think of that might make people laugh.
1: Okay, and yeah, what are your main um, sources of of inspiration so far?
7: Well, there's no shortage of sources of inspiration so far. A lot of the language that the EU uses, you have to be quite on the nose. In the first first show we did, we did a sketch about the EU's response to Afghanistan, or should I say lack of response to Afghanistan. In the show we've just done, we dealt a lot with Poland and the rule of law issues. One final thing on Poland before. I can only apologise for
0: the strong words I'm about to use.
7: The European Commission expresses concern <laughs> about the situation. That's right, expresses concern. you could write now. Uh, right, let's move on to questions. So you have to tackle the serious subjects whilst also poking fun at some of the EU's more unusual things. I mean, the College of Europe, for example, we did a sketch about this time with a transparency register. Some of those more out of the way institutions as well. And uh, we need to turn our attention to the European Parliament. We haven't done that yet. We're coming for you.
1: European Parliament. Far be it from me to suggest that is indeed a rich source of material um, you know, in some cases I think you could probably just use transcripts, but uh, yeah, I mean I was at the show last night thoroughly enjoyed it I'm sure that was probably the first ever comedy sketch about the EU Transparency Register and you have a couple of uh, I mean you certainly make the most of a couple of the kind of larger than life characters so Donald Trump, you had I think a special guest from uh, Amsterdam who does a very good Donald Trump Uh, Also Ursula von der Leyen, the the European Commission President, and Angela Merkel, of course, who will soon be bowing out, but I guess she's still fair game for satire. A very nice uh, sketch imagining Angela Merkel and Donald Trump uh, meeting in Glasgow.
6: I don't know. I'm trying to look... It, but you're doing a
2: great job, by the way. Germany's never looked better. Yeah, I'm, I, I actually am I'm stopping the phone. I know. It's so terrible the way they voted you out. I think it was totally unfair...
6: Just
0: like me, they stole it. It's totally fake. No. The votes were fake. The Donald, counting was nine, fake. Nine in Germany, they have the democracy. Okay. My election was not stolen. It was. I was just said. I said 16 years, Donald. I know. 16 years.
1: Have you got any ideas? Yeah for what might be coming up
7: next month? Uh, no, not yet, because we've just finished, just finished the last one. I think we're going to take a very small break. I've got, we've got some ideas. As I said, we want to do a few sketches based on the Parliament. There'll be some recurring things. There's always going to be a song in there. The midday briefing will remain. The, kind of the opening monologue will remain. And some improvisation too. So those kind of core elements will remain. In terms of the targets, we haven't identified any yet, but um, there'll be a Zoom meeting coming to my life soon in which we'll identify those.
1: Okay. Great. Well, um, we will include a link if people uh, want to sample the Schumann show for themselves. Uh, But for now, Paul, thanks very much. Thank you. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to follow or subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can always send us feedback or ideas for guests or topics you'd like to hear us debate. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks this week to Lucas Kotkamp and to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And
2: thanks to you for listening.